Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. During the 1960s and 70s, the United States and the Soviet Union fought the Cold War on many fronts. Some of these engagements were obvious, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the proxy wars in Asia. Other conflicts were not so obvious. In the 1970s, America and Russia engaged in a new type of warfare, psychic warfare. The CIA was actively recruiting and training people with a natural talent for remote viewing. Remote viewing is projecting your consciousness to anywhere on Earth and beyond. One remote viewer, entirely by accident, found himself at Mount Hayes in Alaska. Mount Hayes is in the middle of nowhere. There's no civilization for miles. But something was calling him to the mountain. Then he looked inside the mountain. There was a base hidden inside Mount Hayes. Then he saw this was not a base built by humans. When multiple sources confirmed the existence of the base, they soon realized this was only the beginning. The story of the psychic competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union is like the chicken and the egg. Some say the CIA heard the Soviets had psychic spies, so they launched their own programs in response. Others say the U.S. was first and the Soviets were responding. Either way, both superpowers created well-funded, super-secret programs focused on ESP, or extrasensory perception. In other words, psychic espionage. A skilled remote viewer would be the perfect spy. They could go anywhere, see anything, completely undetected. Remote viewing means the end of state secrets. Really, the end of all secrets. But remote viewing didn't start out as a military intelligence project. It began as a research project. In 1972, two scientists, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, launched an ESP program at the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI. Then they started looking for volunteers and came across Ingo Swan. Oh, hey, uh, what do you call a fat psychic? Please don't. A fortune teller. <laughs> Ingo Swan claimed to be a great psychic. Putoff was skeptical, so he set up a test. The team had access to a large magnetometer, which can detect slight variations in magnetic fields. Swan had no idea what the machine was. Even though it was buried under 30 feet of concrete, he could see into the device and describe it. He was able to sketch the magnetometer readings. Then he was able to affect the readings. This was good and bad. Good that Ingo proved his abilities, but the purpose of the magnetometer was to detect Soviet nuclear tests. Affecting the output set off alarms all over the lab. The experiment almost got them kicked out of Stanford. But the experiment caught the attention of the CIA. They didn't care that Ingo could move the needle, but the fact that he could see through superconducting shielding buried in 30 feet of concrete, well, that was a problem, but also an opportunity. The CIA quietly funded SRI's research and had them focus specifically on remote viewing, and Ingo Swan became known as the father of this technique. Initial experiments were mostly successful. Ingo could identify images and sealed envelopes. He could project his consciousness to different places and see hidden objects. But this didn't help the CIA. They needed him to view specific locations, Soviet locations. So Ingo Swan and the SRI team created the scan protocol. Project scan was remote viewing by coordinates. Here's how it works. 
You give a remote viewer longitude and latitude coordinates, and you tell them nothing else. Ingo Swan could see what was at a given set of coordinates with remarkable accuracy. By the way, Ingo Swan also remote viewed the moon. I did an entire episode on it. It's linked down below. Now, I don't want to spoil it, but what he saw on the moon was pretty amazing. And for the record, he's the only person who went to the moon. Not now. Soon, another psychic joined the project, Pat Price. Pat was a retired police commissioner. He was a good counterpart to Ingo Swan. Ingo was a painter. He was the typical free spirit artist. He was loud and confident and funny. Pat Price, on the other hand, was grounded and serious. Pat solved a few crimes using his psychic abilities. Now, at the time, Pat thought it was nothing more than intuition, hunches that usually turned out to be true. After he retired from the police department and had more time to focus, he realized his talent was more than intuition. Today, Pat Price is considered one of the most gifted psychics ever. The CIA wanted to test them. Both Pat and Ingo were given coordinates to view. Nobody knew what was at the site except the one CIA analyst who gave them the numbers. Even though they remote viewed separately, both Ingo and Pat sketched similar results. They saw the layout of some kind of compound. They said it looked high-tech. They described a large radar dish, a guardhouse. They saw roll-up doors and jeeps. They said it looked like a military installation. Pat Price was even able to read documents on the site. Now, this is unheard of. Nobody else can do this. But Pat saw a cabinet labeled Operation Pool. Inside were green folders named Q-Ball, 14-Ball, 8-Ball, and Rack-Up. The team showed the results to the analyst and asked how close they were. The analyst said, sorry, but these sketches are nonsense. I gave you the coordinates to my cabin in West Virginia. The whole team at SRI was disappointed and confused. How could both men be so wrong yet see similar things? So they sent someone to the coordinates. He found the cabin. But a few hundred feet down the road from the cabin, he found something else. Ingo Swan and Pat Price were given the coordinates of a CIA analyst vacation home in Sugar Grove, West Virginia. But when they remote viewed the location, that's not what they saw. They saw a military installation. The CIA analyst who gave the coordinates didn't realize that an NSA listening post was just over the ridge from his cabin. Pat and Ingo both assumed this was the target. This was the type of location they were usually asked to view. The Sugar Grove facility in West Virginia was one of the most secret NSA installations in the country. It captured information from Soviet satellites as they flew over. It served as a listening post for all kinds of transmissions. In fact, Sugar Grove is in the NRQZ, the National Radio Quiet Zone. The NRQZ covers about 13,000 square miles in Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland. No radio signals of any kind are permitted there. If you fire up a radio, you will get a visit, a fine, and possibly jail time. A part of the zone is so locked down that microwave ovens and Wi-Fi are not permitted. Hey, no microwaves. Uh, then how can you enjoy a fresh, delicious meal from Factor? Go to Factor, use promo code... Please don't plug them now. What, they didn't pay for a mid-roll? No. Okay, never mind. So, Pat Price and Ingo Swan got it right. They described this facility in detail from Northern California, 3,000 miles away. And you'd think this would be cause for celebration. It wasn't. Every federal law enforcement agency in the country showed up at SRI. They wanted to know why some wacky CIA psychic contractors were spying on an NSA facility. 
And by the way, Project Q-Ball, Project 8-Ball, and Rack-Up, these were so highly classified that even the project names were top secret. The NSA was furious. Once all the agencies calmed down, SRI went back to work. This time, the CIA would focus on the enemy. Oh, the American people. The Soviets. Ah. Pat Price was given coordinates to view. He said he saw a science fiction fantasy crane. Nobody knew what he was talking about. Pat grabbed a ruler, pen, and paper and drew a gantry crane. This type of crane is used to move shipping containers and lift ships out of the water. They're big. Pat said this was the most giant crane he'd ever seen. He saw someone walk by and the wheels on the crane were 10 feet high and the wheels were on train tracks. The CIA had a sketch based on aerial photographs of the site. There was a giant gantry crane. Inside the facility, Pat saw enormous steel spheres 60 feet across. There were no photographs of this. Nobody thought much of it. Pat said that whatever they were building, the Soviets couldn't get it to work. But five years later, U.S. intelligence would discover that the spheres were there. They were nuclear containment devices, and they never worked correctly. Pat Price was right again. At this point, CIA plucked Pat out of SRI. They wanted him to work for them directly. Pat was given more coordinates for a site in Russia. He tried to go there, but something was pulling his focus from his target. Something in Alaska. It was a mountain, Mount Hayes. Now, this was unexpected. Mount Hayes is desolate and remote. There are no roads and no civilization for miles. It's in the middle of a frozen wasteland. Pat said he didn't see anything. Oh, he lied? Yes. But later, on his own, he projected back to the mountain. Then Pat projected into the mountain. Then he understood why he was drawn there. Inside Mount Hayes was a huge base. He saw advanced technology and equipment. He saw computers and consoles and machines that he didn't understand. Then he saw the operators of the machines. Pat saw beings that looked almost human, but were thin with large heads. And they were busy at work on something, though Pat Price didn't know what. Then Pat got scared. Inside the mountain, in the base, working alongside aliens were humans, specifically U.S. military personnel. Two days later, Pat was in Las Vegas. As he walked through his hotel lobby, someone bumped into him. Then Pat felt a sharp pain in his leg. The next day, Pat had severe stomach cramps, and later that evening, he was found dead in his hotel room. His body was quickly removed. No autopsy was performed. No crime scene was designated. The official cause of death was a heart attack. He was 56 years old. Oh, how did they know the cause of death without an autopsy? Good question, and we'll never know. Pat's body was cremated, and then they called his wife. Oh, no. His remains are now in an unmarked grave in North Hollywood, we think. And I'm going to see what this is. This is marker 700. So indeed, indeed, Pat's grave is entirely unmarked. I, I think he deserves better than that. Pat was with the CIA for less than four months. A few years later, the CIA's remote viewing program was called Project Grill Flame. Same mission, different name. Eventually, it would be called Project Stargate. In 1980, the operations and training officer for the project was Skip Atwater. 
Skip was a retired Army intelligence officer now recruiting and training remote viewers. One day, Hal Putoff shows up at Skip's door with four files from Pat Price's remote viewing sessions, each with a different location. Pat gave the documents to Hal before going to work for the CIA full-time. Hal told Skip, you might want to look at these. Skip looked at the files and couldn't believe it. One location was a secret alien base under Mount Hayes, Alaska. And the three other locations? Three other mountains and three more alien bases. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've heard of the Bermuda Triangle. If you followed this channel for a while, you know about the Nevada Triangle. These are places where planes, ships, and people vanish without a trace. There are mysterious triangles all over the world. There's the Dragon Triangle in Japan, the Formosa Triangle in Taiwan, and quite a few others. There's also the Alaska Triangle. The points are Juneau in the east, Anchorage in the west, then up to Barrow in the north. Since 1988, 16,000 people have gone missing in the Alaska Triangle. Nationwide, each state has an average of about seven people per 100,000 reported missing every year. Massachusetts has the lowest number, about two people per 100,000. Hawaii has the second most, 16 people. Not only does Alaska report the most missing people per year, but their number is more than 10 times higher than Hawaii, over 173 people missing per 100,000. And most of those go missing in the Alaska Triangle. The area is harsh and desolate. I'm sure many of the missing people simply succumb to the elements, but not all the people. There are native legends that go back thousands of years that describe creatures appearing and disappearing in thin air, sometimes taking victims with them. There's also something very strange about the geology in Alaska. It's covered with negative magnetic anomalies. This is where magnetism operates in reverse. This would be a nightmare for airplanes, GPS, or any guidance system. And the epicenter of the Alaska Triangle? The place where magnetism goes crazy? Mount Hayes. Mount Hayes. Mount Mother Hayes. Okay. Mount Hayes is also a UFO hotspot. Spotted and tracked for about 24 hours, moving northeasterly at 40,000 feet. At that altitude, officials say they did fear this unknown object posed a risk to civilian flights. There have been sightings of craft that go back years, and sightings as recently as a few weeks ago. People have seen objects hovering over the mountain and then flying in formation at impossible speeds. The reports of objects vanishing into the side of the mountain, not through a door, through solid rock. There's a theory that the magnetic disturbances around Mount Hayes are portals that allow spacecraft to go in and out of the mountain. Mount Hayes was one of four mountains that Pat Price said contained a secret alien base. The others are Mount Perdido in Spain, Mount Inyangani in Zimbabwe, and Mount Zeal in Australia. Pat gave this information to Hal Putoff. Putoff then passed it along to Skip Atwater. At this time, Skip worked with another extremely talented remote viewer, Joseph McMonagall, 
I've talked about him in a few different episodes. He's a legend in the remote viewing community. He's conducted thousands of remote viewing sessions for the Army, CIA. He's also helped companies find oil and precious metals. He's helped law enforcement find missing people. If anyone could confirm Pat Price's findings, it was Joseph McMonagall. So Skip gave Joe four sets of coordinates, and that's all. No other information, just the numbers. Not only did Joe see the alien bases, he saw so much more. It was July 28, 1982. Project 8200 begins. Skip Atwater dimmed the lights in the interview room and took a seat. Joe McMonagall sat on the other side of the table, pen and paper ready. Joe had no idea what he'd be viewing. That's the ideal protocol. If a remote viewer is given information about a location in advance, it could ruin the entire process. Even small details can distract a remote viewer. Details create expectations, which can lead to false positives. For example, you can't say remote view this bowling alley. The remote viewer will start seeing balls rolling and pins falling. Beer drinking. Right. I'm throwing rocks tonight. I got it. Are they really seeing these things? Or is this just what they'd expect to see at any bowling alley? The only way to be sure a remote viewer sees the correct location is by giving them nothing. Skip had a map in a sealed envelope. He then read a series of numbers, coordinates. 63 degrees, 39 minutes north. 146 degrees, 45 minutes west. Joe didn't know what this was, but Skip knew it was... Mount Muffin' Hayes. What? So, Joe relaxed, closed his eyes, and projected his consciousness to those coordinates. As images came into his mind, he sketched them on paper. I have a bunch of water, land, ice, and all these, these general things written in here. This is generally a very desolate area. And I drew in the mountain range. I wrote mountains. This is a whole range of mountains that extends for thousands of miles. So that'll give you an idea of the scale at which I'm drawing here. And I sort of put an X where I perceive the target to be. Going to the target. And I believe that the target's placed deep in this mountain range in this desolate area. Water, land, ice, mountains, a desolate area? Joe was describing Mount Hayes. He drew a pretty accurate map of the area. It was time for Joe to go inside the mountain. Here's the target, which is perceptible. The tubes, all the pipes, masses of electronics, grid work of some kind. This is the target, which is perceptible. It's an emitter of some kind. A sense of great power. Uses a great deal of power energy. Very low uh, frequency feeling. This is the target, which is describable. Huge uh, ground grid forming a uh, electronic arena being very large power input lines from a miniaturized nuclear power plant or power unit 
other tubes buried in the ground. They're, they're coils. Tubes are coils. Joe said the things he was seeing were so foreign to him that he had trouble putting them into words. He said, imagine an Aborigine trying to describe the interior of a car. They don't really have any context. They don't have words for screws and bolts and glass and metal. That's how Joe felt. The technology was far beyond what he could comprehend. But Joe saw that the base was under a large dome. On top of the dome was an emitter sending a huge amount of energy into space. Next, Joe was told the coordinates of Mount Seal in Australia. Yeah, the yawning entrance to a underground cave, black doorway, like a smooth dome of concrete, a black hole, the storage site of some kind. I see. Collage of things buried. Coils. Keep seeing boxes of electronics. Under Mount Zeal, Joe sees another facility with advanced technology. Then he sees something familiar. Keep envisioning uh, control centers. Keep getting visions of all the command and control centers that I've ever been in. Joe describes an underground command center. Later, other remote viewers would describe consoles and screens, and what sounds a lot like NORAD. Reference the caretaker personnel. Do you have visuals of them or? No, I just perceive like a, a watchdog force or something there. What uh, kind of emotional impact is this target? Oh, it's, it's a very, I have a very sinister feeling for this target. Next, Joe goes to Mount Perdido in the Pyrenees Mountains between France and Spain. The first thing he says is, I see sheep. Gray rocks, gray sheep, not a natural cave, cliff and rocks. Mount Perdido does have cliffs, gray rocks, and yes, there are sheep everywhere. Joe sketches the layout of the facility. This connection is observable. Interconnecting points like a spider web. Pressure of relay. Pressure that it catches something and relays it back. Dream high frequency relay. Transponder. This is where we start to learn that the facilities are connected like a spider web. You'll get this impression of a string of beads in the sky. Circling the earth. Toward the end of the session, Joe could see the facility being built. He said the construction took place about two to two and a half years ago. Oh, he saw aliens at the base? Nope. Oh. It was being built by people. <laughs> when Joe McMonagall was remote viewing the site at Mount Perdido, Spain, he was extremely accurate. He saw the cliffs, gray rocks, and sheep. That's the only time he mentioned sheep in thousands of remote viewing sessions, but he was right about them too. When Skip Atwater conducted the interview, Joe saw something unexpected, the facility being built. Skip was expecting this to be construction that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago with advanced technology maybe using UFOs. But that's not what Joe saw. 
occupants are describable. Helicopters. Very rugged mountain range. Kind of desolate. Vehicles of transport are perceptible. Helicopters. Not large but small. Boxes being brought in by helicopters. Boxes being brought in by helicopters. So human involvement. Military involvement. This tracks with what Pat Price saw at the Mount Hayes facility. He saw human military personnel working alongside alien beings. And just like Mount Hayes, Joe saw an emitter sending energy into space. Impression which I have labeled receive. I feel like this is situated in a footprint. In other words, it's being targeted with some kind of an emitter and that's a receiver. I have a cable going down into a cleft in the rocks in this particular location. And in the cleft in the rocks is a, like a control black box and a power pack. Located in the center is a small dish or disc type shape with a spike in it. And that's a very high frequency emitter and it emits straight up. And that's there's a necessity that this be located on an extremely tall mountaintop or there's a high range of mountains. During this session, Joe also gets the sense that this location is also involved in transmitting and receiving energy and information. The last mountain viewed is Mount Inigani in Zimbabwe. Joe sees a singular mountain, a group of high hills. There's a jungle close by. He sees black boxes of electronics. Again, he feels the concept of command, control, and communications but everything comes together now. These command centers are linked. Joe says it's like a spider web. It's not turned on, or it's turned on, but it's lying dormant. They're all lying dormant, but they're all turned on that are installed. They're still going in. I get that impression. It, this is just a gut feeling now, but this is a perception, a, a con concept perception. Mm -hmm. If you equate this to a cobweb, Every single angle in a cobweb represents a location on the cobweb. And I get an impression that the spider has not turned his whole cobweb on yet. But when he does, then it'll just be rattled the web anywhere. After the session, Joe tried to explain what he meant by spider web or cobweb. Now remember, Joe never mentions aliens, but he wasn't looking for aliens. He wasn't looking for anything. He was just given coordinates but he sees technology he can't comprehend when he views these locations. This is really, this is, this is all off the wall to me. My raw impressions are each one of these target sites is like a different spoke in a wheel. And that, that's a bad example, but it's, it's like, it's like a, diff a different part of a jigsaw puzzle. And each one is dormant, it does nothing unless it's commanded to do something. Mm -hmm. And then all it does is, is transfer. It, it just transfers something. I get a just an overwhelming feeling of the, the big three C, you know, command, control, and communications. What are these locations transferring and to where? Joe sees it. Sensing and perceiving and emitting relay. Uh, location is an uh, integral part of uh, location. Get a fixed uh, 
fixed orbitable platform. It's not going anywhere. No, no occupants now, but there's a capability, it seems. Can't tell if it's occupiable there or occupied before delivery. It's fully automated. No occupants, fully automated. Like every remote viewing session, after Joe brings his consciousness back, he tries to explain what he saw and what he wrote down. Skip asks him to describe the space platform. I'm trying to go to the origin of the space-born platform. I got a very old and a very new sensation, like, like I got both sensations. It's like uh, periods of time I'm talking about, I'm trying to equate the years, and they're, they're not. There's like, I'm going from ancient to new to ultra-modern back to new. You know, I'm flopping around in time, so that, that's probably pretty important. What Joe means is that the technology is extremely advanced, but this space platform has been there for a long time. Ancient, he says. Okay, so where's the platform? This uh, space-born platform is in, is in a permanent fixed place. It's not rotating around the Earth, and it's not... Uh, it's like it's fastened with a string to the Earth never moves and it's way out there you know so it has no decaying orbit it's fixed and these bases aren't just within the mountains they're also under the ocean also there's more than just these four locations i have uh an immediate vision of seabed locations you know i, I honestly believe that there are seabed locations in these these things Skip Atwater confirms this and all of these sessions in a talk he gave in 2009. And that's where he explains again, very old and that these have been here a long time, but what he is viewing is so new he doesn't understand it. There are some of these on the seabed. Uh, they have to do with per precise observation, uh, location and relay, some navigation use. When Joe first viewed the Mount Hayes alien base, he got a sinister feeling. But as he viewed each location, that feeling became less and less. My initial target, or target number one, was I had a very sinister feeling. Target number two got less sinister. Target number three was not sinister at all. This target has convinced me that this has no, absolutely no evil content in the way that we would describe evil. Skip Atwater had another psychic who claimed to be in telepathic communication with these beings in the bases. The psychic asked them, what do you think of humans? The response was basically, not much. Uh-oh. Yeah, that sounded ominous to the psychic too, so he asked the being to explain. The response was, we see humans like you see a flock of birds. There are a few of us interested in them scientifically, but most of the aliens on Earth, while aware of humans, don't see us as anything more than the other animals here. Yes, we're slightly more intelligent, but otherwise we're just animals in a zoo to them. Animals with nuclear weapons. Right, there's that. The only time ETs will involve themselves in our affairs is if we try to do something to harm the planet. How dare you! Notice I didn't say harm ourselves. The aliens don't care whether we're here or not, but they won't let us hurt their planet. Why not? Well, because the Earth provides them with resources. The four alien bases in the mountains, plus the bases in the ocean, are creating energy from something in the Earth. 
This energy is harnessed, concentrated, and sent to an orbital platform in deep space. What happens from there, nobody knows. Joe McMonagle's remote viewing sessions were focused primarily on technology, energy, and the space platform. Joe did see helicopters outside the base at Mount Perdido, but he didn't see the beings operating the bases. But Pat Price did see them. Pat Price said the bases contained beings that looked like humans, except for the heart, lungs, blood, and eyes. And if Pat Price says creatures are there, they're there. So Skip Atwater brought in a few other remote viewers, not only to confirm the existence of the bases, but also to see who was operating them. Were they aliens or were they humans? According to several other remote viewers, the answer is yes. When Hal Putoff gave Pat Price's four files to Skip Atwater at Project Stargate, he told him, you might want to look at these. Pat had seen bases inside mountains, full of advanced technology. Pat saw aliens operating equipment. And in some cases, he saw human military personnel working alongside the aliens. Remote viewer Joe McMonagle confirmed the existence of the bases and the technology. Joe even determined that the bases are linked and transmit energy to an object in space but he didn't see the occupants. Years later, Ingo Swan trained a few more remote viewers using CRV, coordinate remote viewing. Skip Atwater decides it's time to go back to the mountains. Remote viewer Bill Ray is given his first set of coordinates. He describes a hollow mountain in a cold climate. Mount Mother... Mount Hayes. Yes, Mount Hayes. Bill sees electronic monitoring equipment and metallic ships, which are very quick. Bill describes people who were thin, unemotional, cold, and acted like they were programmed. He felt like they had a purpose and a mission. To Bill, they felt unearthly. Remote viewer Paul Smith saw a cluster of structures in a cold, windswept, desolate area. Inside, he saw people manning the site. They seemed regimented and subdued. He also saw box-shaped electronics and cables running underground. Session after session, Skip Atwater's remote viewers saw the same things. Some were more detailed than others, but all saw a mountain in a cold climate. All saw a base inside filled with electronics. And several remote viewers saw thin, unemotional beings going about some kind of business. But Skip was concerned that his own thoughts might be bleeding into the sessions. So he conducted what he called a fully blind session. This is where not only does the remote viewer have nothing but the coordinates, but the same goes for the interviewer. Ed Dames was the monitor who read the coordinates to remote viewer Mel Riley. Mel sees a structure within a mountain. He sees a dark figure seated at a control panel operating a keyboard. Not a keyboard like we use, but something with large buttons or keys like a piano. He sees other figures walking around. As Joe McMonagle described, Mel says it looked like an underground control center, like NORAD at Cheyenne Mountain. And like Joe, Mel also saw a large dome covering the structures. Then Mel saw what he described as some sort of UFO. Other remote viewers saw UFOs also, but Skip Atwater later admitted that they were afraid to put anything about UFOs in an official report. Now, if we go all the way back to Pat Price in the 1970s, he drew what looks like a UFO under one of the mountains. In Skip's lecture, he sums up all the findings and key takeaways. The price data itself describes four locations which he claimed and which was presupposed to be UFO bases. You know, how did Pat do this? I mean, I don't know how he 
initially targeted himself. The sites were highly protected from discovery. They were mutually supportive in purpose, and they were very high technology of some kind. And the purposes of these bases included a monitoring function. Project 8200 confirms the existence of four subterranean sites, and several remote viewers saw or felt the presence of extraterrestrials. Project 8200 also confirmed the sites are intentionally hidden and working together. The sites are sometimes occupied, but not always. They're used for observation and relaying information and energy to an object in deep space. Finally, Joe McMonagall added that other bases are located deep in the ocean. Remember, Joe was remote viewing in the 80s. Skip Atwater gave this lecture in 2009. That's long before the videos we've seen of UFOs flying around and going in and out of the ocean. So after getting confirmation of UFO bases, that's when Skip Atwater decided he'd had enough. His project had limited resources, and if other agencies found out they were spending so much time searching for UFOs, that could be the end of the project and the end of many people's reputations. But something was nagging Skip. He kept asking himself, is any of this true? Well, he knew the CIA station chief in Northern Australia, so decided to give him a call. He asked his friend in Australia, hey, is anything unusual happening down there? The guy said, nah, this is a dead assignment. Well, except for all the UFOs flying around Mount Zeal. Yeah! Project Stargate was discontinued in 1993. It was finally shut down because, according to the CIA, it didn't provide any useful information. No, come on, it ain't kidding. Yeah, that in itself is suspicious. The budgets for Stargate, SRI, and psychic research were tiny compared to other military and intelligence operations. The government spends more money on office supplies than it was giving to Stargate. Really, it was shut down because of negative PR. Remote viewing and the U.S. government's interest in it was showing up in newspapers and magazines and TV shows. ESP was a very fringe idea. I'm sure some senior military official shut it down out of embarrassment. But while Stargate was operational, it kept busy. Joe McMonagall and Russell Targ both said that every government agency was using their psychics, but nobody would admit it. I bet it's still going on. I would think so. It's buried in a black budget somewhere. But how much of all of this is true? Well, a lot of it depends on your perspective and existing beliefs. If you believe in ESP, then this story makes complete sense. If you don't believe, this story sounds bonkers. So let's see if we can find the middle ground. Ingo Swan is the most well-known remote viewer. I've covered him before, and I'm a fan of his. He has some famous successes, like he said that Jupiter had rings. When he said that, it was a ridiculous claim. Later, it was discovered Jupiter does have rings. But he also said Jupiter had a huge mountain range. But on a gas giant, that's not possible. Uh, uh, hey, did he ever look at Uranus? Yeah. It's true that Ingo Swan got plenty of things right. But there's no way to know what his true success rate is. Very little can be verified, but he sure tells a hell of a story. Same with Joe McMonagall. He's a legend. He claims to have a 95% success rate, or 65%, or 75%. It fluctuates. Joe's done remote viewing sessions for live TV and was successful, but his 15 minutes of footage was edited down to two minutes of the best stuff. Maybe it was edited for time and he had 15 straight minutes of winners. I don't know. But it all started with Pat Price. But there's not a lot of information out there about him. Yeah, and the CIA likes it that way. Yeah, Pat did die under mysterious circumstances. And the story certainly sounds like a CIA hit. 
But years later, a former KGB agent defected from the Soviet Union, and he claimed to be an assassin. And he said one of his targets was a psychic in Las Vegas who he poisoned. Oh. Right. If Pat Price was really able to see inside Soviet military installations, he would need to go. But I can't find the name of that defector to verify the story, so... CIA propaganda. Could be. And speaking of CIA propaganda, we have to examine the people involved in Project Stargate very closely. Yeah, are we gonna name names? Yes, we are. Yeah, Since the 1970s, a number of people with very high security clearances have been working on UFO phenomena. They were interacting with each other so much they gave themselves code names. The code names were all birds, so they called themselves the aviary. Cute. Well, let's start with the owl. Psychic research begins with Harold Hal Putoff in the early 1970s at SRI, the Stanford Research Institute. We know that Putoff worked with the CIA on Project Stargate, but the owl has worked on and off for the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency for years. But most of his work happened after he left the Church of Scientology. You bleep me? Well, you know we can't say the S word. They, they sue people. Fair enough. Well, how high did the owl get in the, uh, uh, ch- uh, Church of Tom Cruise? Well, OT7. That was the top level at the time. Yikes. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, oh, congratulations. What a nice achievement. Hey, I'm just giving information. I'm not making judgments. I am. Putoff is also involved in UFOs. He founded To The Stars, a private venture investigating UFOs. Also on the board of To The Stars is Christopher Mellon, who's also former CIA and DIA, and Steve Justice, former director of advanced systems development at Lockheed Martin, and Luis Elizondo, a former intelligence officer who says he ran ATIP. ATIP, or the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, essentially continued Project Blue Book. Elizondo says he ran this program. The Pentagon says he had nothing to do with it. Elizondo says this is a smear campaign. Pop quiz. Who do you believe? An intelligence officer or an intelligence agency? Neither. Correct. Next, Blue Jay. Dr. Kit Green also worked on Stargate, and he was a CIA analyst. In 2001, leaked emails showed that Dr. Green said the infamous alien autopsy video was true. It was. Well, it was a film produced in 1995. A hoax. Later, Green said that he never said it was real. He said the still shot of the face looked real. So, which is it? Next bird, Falcon. Falcon is the infamous Richard Doty. Doty was a special agent for the Air Force OSI, the Office of Special Investigations. He was in charge of UFO disinformation programs. One of Doty's assignments was to infiltrate the UFO community and flood it with as much disinformation as possible. This way people would know what to believe. Bill Moore, a well-known UFO author, destroyed his career in a single afternoon. He publicly said he was taking payments from the government via Doty and helping spread lies. He was essentially booed off the stage and we haven't heard much from him since. But, Doty has since come forward and said UFOs are real and that most of the UFO stories we hear are real. And that's what is so disgusting and troubling within the UFO community. That's why I have nothing to do with them anymore. I've tried. I've, I've went to UFO conventions and tried to explain what the, what the truth is and nobody wants to hear you because they've written a book that says it happened this way and they're not going to listen to you even though they don't, don't, really don't know the truth. 
Is he telling the truth now? Who knows? Our next bird is Woodpecker. Woodpecker is Jamie Shandera, a film producer. He's considered one of the birds who wants UFO disclosure. So there are good guys and bad guys in the aviary. But enter Bob Collins, AKA Condor. Bob Collins is also a former intelligence agent with OSI who engaged in UFO disinformation campaigns. In 1989, a documentary was released called UFO Cover-Up Live. Chandera was featured in that documentary, but this TV program got people asking questions. Many in the UFO community consider the doc to be nothing but a disinformation campaign, and it's easy to see why. Bob Collins, right, he stated in his book that after the documentary, he attended what he called a mini summit. This was a meeting to deal with the fallout of the TV show. At the summit was The Owl, Hal Putoff, Falcon, Richard Doty, Blue Jay, Kit Green, and Bill Moore, who was being paid by the government to lie to the public about UFOs. According to Collins' book, quote, Kit Green took center stage by proposing several lines of attack involving disclosure strategies. So are they on the side of disclosure or disinformation? There's more. You might remember my episode on Project Serpo. This was an exchange program between the United States and aliens from the planet Serpo. It's a great story, and by the way, all these are linked below. Now, it took a long time, but the planet Serpo story was found to be a hoax perpetrated by what came to be known as the Team of Five. Two of the five were Victor Martinez and Bill Ryan, who ran the website disseminating the information. The information came from three men, Owl, Falcon, and Blue Jay. Put off Doty and Green. Once again, Doty later said Serpo is true, and it may be. But in telling the story, the team of five got caught telling all kinds of other lies. But some of the lies they say are true. I get into all this in the episode. And by the way, Bob Lazar and a few other whistleblowers also say Serpo is true. So you make the call. But birds of a feather stick together. Neither talk about it much, but for years, Doty, aka the Falcon, worked for Putoff, aka the Owl. Doty spent 10 years as a private contractor for Putoff's company, EarthTech. EarthTech worked with the US intelligence community on black programs. Don't take my word for it, here's how. The particular area that I took responsibility for is based on this. There was a critical issue. As you can well imagine in these deep black programs, it's difficult for contractors to obtain expert opinion on critical technologies because there's such high level security and there's compartmentalization. We call it stovepiping. And so I was contracted to commission papers from experts around the globe. And since we didn't want to be in the position of going out and say, hey, we're trying to figure out this UFO thing. Uh, you know, can you help us out here? I mean, the publicity associated with that in our black program would have been a disaster. Here's something else. In 2006, a book came out that blew the whistle on everything. It's called The Black World of UFOs, Exempt from Disclosure. It talks about government cover-ups, sensitive DIA and CIA documents, reverse engineering alien spacecraft. All the great UFO stories are in this book. I love it. What's, what's the problem? It was written by Collins and Doty. Condor and Falcon. Yep. Yeah. Look, I believe UFOs exist, and I believe we have recovered craft. But I'm skeptical of anyone who's worked in intelligence. Because once you're in, you're never out. Whatever's being said about UFOs by people like Doty, Putoff, Elizondo, David Grush, I take all that with a grain of salt. 
These are not whistleblowers. These are people who spent most of their careers in intelligence. The things they say, they're allowed to say. They have permission. Uh, permission for who? Well, isn't that the big question? Pat Price, the psychic who started it all, comes off as the most credible of all the people I talked about today. He was a retired cop from a small town. He used his gift to solve crimes, to help people. And Pat was a patriot. The CIA asked for help and he provided it. Four months later, Pat was dead. In my research, I found something Pat Price said that bothered me. He said this, people have infiltrated all government in sensitive positions, not to control government, the processes or people, but rather to be in positions of power, to stop politically any activity that may produce a result that could cause discovery. Americans want information about UFOs released. Congress tried and couldn't do it. Presidents have tried and couldn't do it. So if our elected leaders aren't in charge, who is? During Stargate, it was discovered that anyone can learn remote viewing. Some people like Joe McMonagle and Pat Price are naturally gifted, but the rest of us, with practice and training, it's a skill we can all develop. But that would mean the end of all secrets. That can't be allowed to happen. Secrets are the source of their power, whoever they are. And that's why Stargate was shut down. Not because it failed, because it worked. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. My name is AJ. There's Hecklefish. Thank you, Siri. Come stay. This has been The Wide Files. If you learned anything, had fun, do him a favor, subscribe, comment, like, share. That stuff really helps us out. And like every topic we cover here, today's was recommended by you. So if there's a story you'd like to see or learn more about, go to thewidefiles.com slash tips. And remember, The Wide Files is also a podcast. Twice a week, I post deep dives into the stories we cover here on the channel. I also post episodes that wouldn't be allowed on the channel. It's called the Y-Files Operation Podcast, and it's available everywhere you get podcasts. If you need more Y-Files in your life, because who doesn't, you can never get too much of this, check out our Discord. There are thousands of people on there 24-7, and they talk about the same weird stuff that we do. It's a great community, it's a lot of fun, and it's free to join. And if you want to stay up to date with everything Y-Files, go to thewifiles.com slash cal. Our production calendar is there. You can see what episodes are coming out, what podcasts, when we're doing live streams, watch-alongs, all that stuff. And special thanks to our patrons who make all of this happen. Every episode is dedicated to you. As you know, there'd be no Y-Files without your support. I can't believe you're here, but I'm truly grateful for you. The best way to support the channel is become a member on Patreon. For as little as three bucks a month, you get access to perks like videos early with no commercials, access to merch only available to members, plus you get two private live streams every week just for you. Another great way to support the channel is grab something from the Wi-File store. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm getting a vision. A vision? A vision of you grabbing a Hecklefish t-shirt or a fistable coffee mug or a hoodie or a squeezy stuffed animal Hecklefish fish toy or a Dickies Go Hecklefish playing card game cards. <laughs> That's going to do it. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and know that you are appreciated. Bible said I was 
I love my UFOs and paranormal fun As well as music So I'm singing it like I should But then another conspiracy theory becomes the truth, my friends And it never ends No, it never ends With MK Ultra, I'll be an only true aware. Did Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing alone on a film set? Or were the shadow people there? The Roswell aliens just fought the smiling man, I'm told. And his name was Cold. And I can't believe. What the dark watchers found In a simulation Don't you worry though The black night satellite It told me so I can't believe 